At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the epistle of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and instruction from His Word and by His Spirit this evening, let's focus our attention upon the portion of chapter 4 of James' epistle that we're going to be focusing on tonight as we hopefully bring our brief series on the exhortations of this chapter to a close. I'm going to begin in verse 4 and just uh, read a couple of the verses that are relevant here. James confronts the professing Christians to whom he writes, most likely converted Jews, professing Christian Jews in the early portion of the apostolic period in the first century. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he exhorts them in uh, verse 6, he reminds them, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then James proceeds to lay out a number of directives to these professing Christians who are guilty of spiritual adultery, who are making the Lord jealous by their love and friendship toward the world. He says, therefore, verse 7, submit to God. 
Uh, He exhorts them as well to resist the devil, to draw near to God, to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, to lament and mourn and weep, to humble yourselves, verse 10, in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He goes on to urge them not to speak in, in a judgmental way of others. And in verse 13, he notes the urgency of their repentance from this backsliding in their Christian life at best. Some of them perhaps are unconverted, as you can see in the next chapter where he rebukes the wealthy and says that essentially they're headed for destruction. So some of these people are unconverted, but best case scenario, backsliding believers, he says this is urgent. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. They're focusing on their earthly business and they're making all these plans out into the future when as it stands, the Lord is raging in jealousy and wrath against His people for their spiritual adultery. And it's urgent for them before they begin to plan out all of these things for the future and their temporal earthly estate and business, it's more urgent for them to pursue what they know to be right. To leave their business plans in the hands of God's providence and to focus on the most pressing matter for themselves, namely that it's time to get serious in their relationship with God. Verse 17, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So making a profit, nothing wrong with that, but the first priority needs to be spiritual and it is urgent that it be so. Uh, We talked in previous sermons from this chapter concerning the method that James uses even throughout his entire epistle. That he's confronting the people of God for their uh, seeming disinterest in spiritual things. They'll hear the Word, but they won't do it. They'll profess faith, but they won't live it. Uh, he's urging them to press on to maturity, to obedience. Uh, they, they bless God with the same tongue with which they curse their neighbor. And so he's urging consistency. Uh, they're pursuing their earthly pleasures and lusts to the extent that their covetous hearts are not only in rebellion against God, not only discontented with God and loving the world, but also competing viciously with one another, fighting and warring, perhaps even literally murdering one another to get their hands on the goods. And so they're filled with greed. You go into chapter 5, he's confronting them for injustice. Uh, Throughout this epistle, he confronts them for partiality toward the rich. Uh, All kinds of things. And uh, really, a, a major theme as well is that when they experience trials and afflictions, getting back to the opening of the epistle, they should count it all joy. In this particular context, it's clear that many of them are backsliding, some of them are unconverted, and therefore, of course they should count these afflictions as joy. Because God is using these things as alarm clocks to wake them up. It's time to get serious. We've talked about this. We've had multiple sermons on this chapter. And we've been focusing on the basics of the response that God presents to us here through James in terms of how to deal with this. How do we get serious uh, with God? Uh, And hopefully many of us who have heard those sermons have acted upon it. We've seen in this chapter that we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. God resists the proud. He opposes the proud. If we're going to have more grace... To overcome these temptations, we need to humble ourselves as dust and ashes before God. And that's the way. Drawing near before Him in lowliness, in dependence, in uh, abhorrence of ourselves in dust and ashes, and clinging to God Himself. Humble yourselves. And we, we saw that humility uh, leads us to depend upon the means of grace. Or could we say depend upon God through the means of grace? Daily coming to the Word of God in prayer. Why? Because we're foolish. We ought to be humiliated by how foolish we are. We need the wisdom of God's Word. 
Uh, We're weak. We're powerless. God is sovereign. Come to Him in prayer daily. Depend upon Him. If we're not in the Word and prayer, then we're actually proud. And God is not only, uh, you know, we have not because we ask not, but frankly, He's opposing us the whole time. So, very simple, very basic. Nothing extreme, nothing off the charts, nothing that's going to, you know, cause people to want to download this sermon on the internet. But, it's basic biblical wisdom. Humble yourself. It's as simple as that. Unfriend the world, we saw. Stop loving the world. Uh, You become a friend of the world. You're associating with the world. You're assimilating and being conformed to the pattern of the world. What the world wants, what the world needs, what the world thinks it needs. You're beginning to gravitate to those things as your chief end rather than to the, the shining face of God Himself. You're assimilating. You're committing adultery. God is jealous because your worldly pursuits and pleasures, rather than being incorporated into your Christian life as part of your relationship with God, they have been elevated now to becoming a rival God in your life. And the Spirit yearns jealously over you. And He's saying the time is now. The time was a month ago. The time was two weeks ago. The time is now again as we consider this text perhaps for the last time. Uh, also, again, humble yourself, unfriend the world. Nothing could be simpler than that. He goes on, submit to God. Submit your will to God's will. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. You open your Bible. You read it. You meditate on it. You do it. God has summarized His, his law in the Ten Commandments. Jesus has summarized the Ten Commandments in the two great commandments. It's not mystical. It's not confusing. It's very simple. Do what God says. Uh, That's the main theme of this entire epistle. Submit to God. We're either submitting to God or we're making ourselves God in His place. One way or the other. So we need to simply know and do the will of God. Jesus elsewhere, John's Gospel says, you know it, but blessed are you if you do it. This is the theme of verse 17 to close out the chapter. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know that you need to be in the Word of God. Not just as a token uh, devotional time for three minutes or something, but you know you need to be in it. And it needs to be in you if you're going to live the Christian life with any amount of success and joy and peace and holiness. You know you need to be in prayer You know you need to have family worship. You know that you can look on the inside of your psalm book and see the covenant of communicant membership and the promises that you've made even as we uh, approach the Lord's table this coming Lord's Day evening. You know, vow five, to the end that you may grow in the Christian life that you've promised to diligently read the Bible, engage in private prayer, keep the Lord's Day, regularly attend the worship services, observe the appointed sacraments, and give to the Lord's work as He shall prosper you. You've promised to endeavor to forsake all sin, to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek to win others to Him. These are basic, simple, biblical commands. These are means of grace and joy and happiness for yourself and those around you, inside and outside the church. This is the perfect law of liberty that God has given us as a way of blessing in the Christian life. It's simple. It's not complicated. And we need to simply submit to it. We know it. Are we doing it? Because if you're a Christian, understand, through Christ you can do all things. Under all circumstances, there's always a way of escape from temptation. No excuses, right? Trust in the promise of God. Submit to God, even with the power of Christ who said, not my will, but thy will be done. We saw resist the devil. That the devil ought to be on our radar. We need to understand his agenda, his devices, his deceptive tactics. And we need to keep an eye on what the devil is doing in our lives. We need to be daily again in the Word and prayer, clothing ourselves in the armor of God, 
ready to face off with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying with all prayer and supplication. Simple, basic. You resist the devil in that way, he will flee. Why is it that the devil's having a field day in the church today? According to James, it's not because of all these complicated things and we could go on and on about some of the suggestions as to why the world is the way it is. I'll tell you why. According to James, people simply aren't resisting the devil. People aren't in the Word of God and prayer clothed in the armor of God living the basic Christian life in their own place and calling. That's why the devil's running wild. And that's why the world is the way it is today. Very simple, very direct. Also, we saw last time, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Uh, The way to fight adulterous thoughts is the marriage bed. Uh, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, if you're going to resist the temptation to spiritual adultery, listen, you have a holy heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to spend time with Him. You need to draw near to God through Him. You need to commune intimately with Him through the means of grace in public, family, and private worship, which then spill over into our thoughts throughout the day. Not that we're going to be thinking about God in Christ every moment of every day. As I've often said, if I ever have brain surgery, uh, I hope that the surgeon is thinking about what he's doing with the scalpel and not meditating on superlapsarianism. But the point is, uh, throughout the day, there are many opportunities for the means of grace to spill over in practicing the presence of God and walking in the Spirit in conscious delight in the Lord. It's simple. It's private worship, family worship, public worship, keeping the Sabbath, and letting those things have their effect on our daily lives where we have moments throughout the day uh, to meditate momentarily upon God and upon Christ. Draw near to God. And not drawing near with the lips and not the heart, rather drawing near with the heart, the lips, the life. Very simple. We're told if we do that, He will draw near to us. God is not setting the bar at an insurmountable level. He's not setting it so high that we need to be super Christians to enjoy the presence of God. That's not the case. Draw near to Him. He'll draw near to you. He promises as much. We saw those promises and hopefully we believe them. But it's very simple. And now we pick up with the the next set of uh, exhortations, in particular midway through verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why are we backsliding? Sin. Why were these recipients of this epistle backsliding? What was their backsliding at the end of the day? It was sin. What is sin? Lawlessness. What is sin? It's the lack of conformity to the law of God, the transgression of the law of God, it all comes back to the moral law of God. In their thoughts, in their words, in their actions, they were sinning. They weren't loving God in the way that He's directed them to in His commandments. If you love Me, keep My commandments, Jesus says. They weren't loving their neighbor as themselves according to God's commandments. 1 John 4, what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to have love for him according to God's commandments. And so they were sinning. There was an objective moral failure on their part. They were knowing but not doing the revealed will of God. It wasn't mystical. It wasn't confusing. It wasn't complex. It was very simple. Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And they're not doing it in their thoughts, in their words, and in their actions. And James confronts them in a very potent and striking way. Throughout this entire chapter, you've got 17 verses, and in these 17 verses, no less than 30 times, he employs the word you or your. So he's not saying we. He's not saying, you know, we have problems and we need to repent. And of course, there's a time and place for that. You can find examples of that in Scripture. But 
he is direct. He's saying you, you, your, throughout this entire section, where do wars and fights come from among you? And he goes on throughout the entire chapter 30 times in no less than 17 verses. You and your. In other words, he's saying you have sinned. Take ownership of your life. Take ownership of what God has given you in terms of opportunities, talents, uh, spheres of influence. What God has given you, He's given you much, then He requires much. He's saying, listen, you need to take ownership of your life, your responsibilities. You need to claim the promises I've given to you, and you need to obey the commands I've given to you. And if you've sinned, if your hands are stained with sin and your heart is impure through the love of the world, then you need to cleanse your hands and purify your heart. In other words, to say it in a modern lingo, he's not beating around the bush here, friends. He's not beating around the bush. He's saying, start taking ownership of your life. You are making sinful choices. You need to make godly choices. Now that seems so direct and perhaps uh, overly uh, blunt to us, but the fact of the matter is that's how the Bible speaks. When God directs the Ten Commandments to Israel, He says, you shall uh, have no other gods before Me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's the, first, it's the second person uh, singular. You, thou, in the King James singular. So this is the whole uh, substance of biblical exhortation here coming to bear upon you personally. And we have so many excuses, don't we? We can look and we can say, well, because of my parents or because of my circumstances or look at who's in the White House and look at the, the, the political situation and look at our state and look at, look at my circumstances, look at where I work, or I don't have a job, or look at my family situation, and all these circumstances, well, you know, look at who I'm married to, and look at all of these circumstances that are weighing down. And James says, no, no, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, the power of Jesus Christ in your life, if you're a true believer, is such that you have the power Okay? You're not weak. Satan doesn't have the edge on you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are empowered to take ownership of your Christian life. And by that I mean devoting yourself to, to the one who truly bought you with a price. But you're ready to take ownership. The Spirit enables you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead gives life to your mortal body, sanctifies you, and conforms you to the image of Christ such that you can look at the situation that you're in and you can choose to do the right thing. You can choose not to fulfill that desire of the flesh. You can make godly choices and priorities. There is nothing, listen, there is nothing standing in your way as a Christian other than you. Other than you. If Satan has a foothold in your life, listen, Ephesians tells us you gave him that foothold. Shake him loose. Resist him. He will flee. Listen to the promises that God gives us here. Uh, If we submit to God and resist the devil, the devil will flee. If we draw near to God, God will draw near. In fact, I was going to say to us, but let me say it this way. He will draw near to you. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, You double-minded. You don't have to be double-minded. You can identify those things that have come into your life that are sapping your spiritual vigor, those things that are hindering you in the Christian life, those sins that so easily entangle you. Again, it's not rocket science. The Spirit will give you wisdom, will give you insight. Take some time alone with God. Examine yourself in light of God's Word. And God will point these things out to you and you can weed them out and you can pursue a pure heart and clean hands. That's not saving yourself. That's called working out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in you, enabling you to do it. 
God would not command you to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and repent of your double-mindedness if you as a believer couldn't actually do that. And even for the unconverted people here that he's writing to, again, chapter 5 implies they're there. Even in that case, if we apply these verses to repentance unto life and faith in Christ and conversion, the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit enables God's elect to respond to the Word. The Spirit will enable you. If you're an unbeliever, if you're walking in darkness, uh, then you can draw near to God if God draws you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing preventing the Holy Spirit from enabling you to do these things, even if, if we're speaking of conversion for many of these things. But believers, you have the, you have the strength. You, you can do all things through Christ who gives you that strength. Uh, another point here, moving on. We need to take sin seriously. Notice verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's saying if we're to come out, if we're going to snap out of this vicious cycle of backsliding and Uh, habitual sin and spiritual adultery, we need to take sin seriously. You see, we can't view sin as something that is, as the Roman Catholics say, venial. Right? They say, well, there's the, the mortal sin. There's the sin that leads to death. And then there are these other sins and they're not quite as bad. They're venial sins. Now, of course, Uh, Jesus distinguishes from swallowing a gnat and swallowing a camel. Some sins are worse than others. We're not denying that. But sin is serious. Every sin is extremely serious. And when you have a sin that's wreaking havoc in a cycle of backsliding like we see in chapter 4 of spiritual adultery, this sin is extremely serious. And 1 Corinthians 5, there are many of these kinds of phenomena going on in Corinth And Paul says you're not doing anything about it. You're not repenting. You're not bringing church discipline. You're letting sin and the world and the devil run wild within the kingdom of God. Your glorying is not good. If you're backsliding, if you're living in habitual sin, you know what that sin is, whether it's the way you treat certain people in your life and you don't do it in public so nobody else knows, whether it's what you're looking at on your phone or your device uh, by way of sexual lust, whatever it may be, uh, cheating on a, on a test uh, this coming fall, maybe, maybe that's an issue. Whatever it is, the fact is that that sin is killing you. It's serious. It's a big deal. Is now a time to celebrate? Is now a time to have a big smile on your face? from one end to the other, rejoicing and living it up in the pleasures and treasures of this world. Now, God gave us those things to enjoy. Nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, if you're outside of Christ or if you're currently backsliding and you continue in this sin and you're not repenting and bringing forth the fruit of repentance in your life, and it's there and it's entangling you and you're stuck in the weeds and you're not going anywhere, is now the time to enjoy worldly frivolity? Is now the time for entertainment? Is now the time for small talk? Is now the time to be celebrating various things? My friends, it it sounds overly puritanical, but the fact of the matter is, when sin is wreaking havoc in our lives, and it's stealing our joy, And it's either leading us to hell or putting us in a position where we're actually leading other people to hell, even if we're believers. It's not a time to celebrate. He says, your glorying is not good. In other words, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, is he saying that the Christian life should ordinarily be filled with lamentation and mourning and weeping? Uh, that we should never laugh, that we should be constantly mourning, and that we should never be joyful, but we should always be gloomy. Well, that would only be the case if we were in perpetual backsliding, you see. We should not be constantly in verse 9. 
We should be at the end of verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. We ought to be enjoying and glorying and, and living in this world with a smile on our face, with laughter, with joy, with all of these things. We need to recognize that verse 9 is applying to those who are ravaged by ongoing habitual sin. Now, there will be times when every believer mourns over sin. That ought to be a regular aspect of our Christian life. When, whenever we confess sin, even daily, there's an element of mourning. But that ought not to be our predominant lifestyle unless our predominant lifestyle is entangled in habitual, besetting sin. And our conscience is burdened by the fact that we're not repenting and we're not making progress and we're spinning our wheels. So we need to understand this in context here. We're not to be dark and dour people. And if we are, there's a problem. But the fact is, if you're outside of Christ, like Herod celebrating his birthday on the verge of uh, martyring John the Baptist and putting his head on the platter, you have no business celebrating because you're going to spend eternity in hell unless you repent. And if you're living a backsliding Christian life at the moment, you need to pull out all the stops and forget about all the small talk and all of these things, and you need to get alone with God and mourn over your sin and get some brothers and sisters involved, prayer, get your elders involved so that you can experience the power of God to lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of God and He will lift you up. What is he saying? He's simply saying this. Take your sin seriously. That's all. If you take it seriously, you deal with it, then guess what? Psalm 51, God will restore unto you the joy of His salvation. In addition, we need to take God's promises seriously. I won't say much on this point because I've already said it. But notice throughout this chapter that God promises, promises that when we do these things by His grace, He will supply the increase. If we don't do these things, either it's because we don't believe that He'll give the increase, therefore it's an evil heart of unbelief, or some type of doubts mixed into our faith, whatever it is, it's a lack of faith. Or we don't want the things that He's promising to do. It's one or the other. And I don't claim to know your heart, but you need to examine. Do you really want the devil to flee from you? Do you want him to flee? Do you want the devil who comes to you as a serpent, tempting you to be your own God? Do you actually want him to stop uh, flattering you in that way? Or do you want to hear that? Is that the message you want to hear? Because, you know, the devil doesn't just come to you as, um, you know, in terms of demonic temptation. Satan is the architect of the world. And if you're imbibing the spirit of this world, it's telling you you're your own God. Be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. Let, you know, be you. Do you. All these kinds of phrases. And at the end of the day, do you want the devil and his worldly influence to flee? Or do you like hearing that? Do you enjoy that? Do you want to be fed with that kind of poison? Because it just seems so sweet. But the fact is, if you resist the devil, he'll flee. And if you want to get away from the devil and you want the devil to get away from you, understand, just submit to God. You, you make a commitment. You line it out in terms of here's what God wants me to do. As difficult as it is, I'm going to step out in obedience, trusting God. Uh, the, the devil will be gone. The devil will be gone before you've even uh, come to recognize it. That's how it works. He will flee from you. He'll probably go to somebody else who doesn't take this verse seriously. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Do you take that promise seriously? If you did, you'd be serious in your devotional life. You'd be serious, again, not in becoming some kind of uh, monastic nomad. Uh, no. We're saying in your ordinary Christian life, 
you devote adequate time, increasing time, quality time to seeking the Lord and coming to Him in private as a family and in public on the Sabbath. And my friends, if you do that, He will bless it. He will draw near. You will experience uh, the, the face of God shining upon you to various degrees. Again, He's a loving Father, a wise Father. He blesses us and chastens us as He sees fit. But in the big picture, over the long haul, you will experience joy unspeakable. As I've said before, uh, those of us that do this, again, we're all imperfect, we want to do more, but those of us, to the extent that we've sought Him, He has showed up. He's showed up. He's showed up in our circumstances. He's answered our prayers. He's given us instruction in seasonable moments when we need this verse to come to mind for this purpose. He brings it to mind. He guides us. He speaks through our conscience. This is the way. Walk in it. He, he, he is everything to us when we seek Him and when we draw near to Him through Christ. So we take sin seriously. We take God's promises seriously. We take no prisoners. We make no exceptions. We make no compartments. We don't say, well, God is in this part of my life, but not that part of my life. God is in this friendship, but not that friendship. This relationship, but not that relationship. This sphere, but not that sphere. We don't put God in a box. In fact, we all live and move and have our being in God. God is involved in every aspect of our life. And if there's an aspect of our life where we don't, in good conscience, feel comfortable to have God involved, then probably we shouldn't be involved in that aspect of our life. Uh, No exceptions, no compartments, no compromise. Notice what he says here. He says, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice, it's the hands, the heart, the mind, the whole person. Every aspect of who you are and what you do is to be permeated by your commitment to Jesus Christ and even by the presence of God Himself in your life. It's to be permeated by God's centeredness and obedience, not being double-minded, but being single-minded. Purity of heart. It's the pure in heart that see God. And in this life, it's the pure in heart. Those who focus on God and, and they remove things that dilute their commitment to God. Again, things in their life that are a distraction from God. Things that are a competitor to God, a rival to God. And that may be different things for different ones of us. So some of us may be able to enjoy God's goodness in a certain activity. We may be able to uh, utilize it as a motivation to give thanks to God for His good gifts. Some of us may be able to do certain things. And others of us, we may say, no, I can't do that. Because for me, that just has a tendency in my own experience, maybe because of my weakness spiritually in that area, it has a tendency to dilute my zeal for the Lord. And my prayer is Psalm 86, unite my heart to fear your name. I want to fear the Lord with my whole heart. I want to sense the imminent presence of the transcendent God. I want to fear God with all my heart. I want to love Him with all my heart. And in this particular form of recreation or entertainment, it, it doesn't jive with my Christian life. And again, it may be different. We need to be careful that we don't make strategic, spiritually minded sacrifices on par with the universal moral law of God. If we do that, we end up with legalism. But I'm saying for your situation, know what you ought to be doing. Him who, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. What are the things that, that are weighing you down, that are diluting your fear of God and your enjoyment of God and your commitment to God? Take no prisoners. Weed your garden. Serve the one Master, Jesus Christ, who bought you with a price. Well, again, another point here. Focus on the basics. I've been saying that the whole time, but let's think about that for a moment. Focus on the basics. 
Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I know it's not an inspired psalm, but it's true. It's true. The Christian life is very simple. And if you look at these directives, what do you have? You have obedience and faith. Trusting and obeying, obeying and trusting. You have obedience and faith. Submit to God in all of these areas and trust that He will give the increase and draw near and bless your Christian life. That's it. When we try to make it more complicated, and in some sense when we try to raise the bar in sort of mystical, extra-biblical, super-arrogatory, extra-credit kinds of ways, we do disservice to the simplicity of the Christian life. Trusting and obeying. Submit to God's will. Trust that He'll bless it. That's the message here. And it's in our ordinary callings in life. As 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, live as you were called in the place and station of life that you found yourself when God first called you to salvation. Don't feel the need to radically change that. Don't feel the need to make all these radical changes in your life uh, in terms of your calling, your vocation, Uh, in terms of where you live, in terms of what you wear, in terms of all kinds of cultural things. Don't, Don't be quick to think that becoming a Christian means every aspect of your life has to change externally. That is not the case. Live as you are called. And we all have an ordinary calling. Many of the people to whom James is writing apparently were merchants or businessmen or businesswomen. Uh, He says, verse 13, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. So they're buying and selling, they're making a profit. This is their means of earning a living, providing for their family. Uh, And he says that they're boasting in this, they're taking for granted uh, that these things are going to happen. They're not realizing that the same God that they've offended, who's yearning jealously and opposing them, is the God who's sovereign over all of these plans. And they're just taking it all for granted and forgetting that uh, these things, these plans, are only as certain as the will of God, if the Lord wills. And so he says their arrogant boasting is evil. Uh, But notice, the solution... I keep coming back to it, verse 17, the solution is not that they should leave the business world. Coming to faith in Christ and then living a godly, spiritually vibrant Christian life where you're not backsliding, but you're on on the, the straight and narrow, righteous paths for His name's sake. When you're doing that, it doesn't mean you have to leave the business world. It doesn't mean that you can't go to that city and buy and sell. It doesn't mean that you can't make a profit and have resources for your family. None of these things are implied. So often, especially in the young, restless, reformed movement today, um, there are all kinds of extreme ideas about what it means to be a Christian. You see it in some of the uh, social justice movements as well in the blog community. Uh, Radical, extreme ideas of what it means to be a Christian, but none of that comes from the Bible. These people are not exhorted to leave their place and calling. They're exhorted to do it in submission to God's will. They're exhorted to do it by faith. And as they conduct themselves in these efforts, having subordinated their earthly calling, their earthly labors to their spiritual priorities, but having done that, they're simply to know and do what is good. To avoid sin and to honor God in their place and calling. Don't be quick to think that living the Christian life and being a 100-fold fruitful Christian involves something radical and extreme. Here it just involves people literally still doing the same things they're going to do, but having spiritual priorities and acknowledging it's only if the Lord wills, submitting themselves to His providence, and seeking to do what is good. That's all. It's very simple. And I submit to you the problems we see in the church today are because people are not doing these simple things. They simply aren't. 
Um, and I'm not sure how to say more about that, but uh, in my experience, the crux of the matter in the lives of Christians in the lives of Reformed Christians, usually comes down to these basic things. It's rarely uh, beyond this. It's, al- it's almost always that they're, they're not focusing on the basics of the Christian life. Well, lastly, we need to act now. We need to act now. We've said it from the outset of this mini-sermon series. It's time to get serious. It's time to get serious. Uh, those who are focusing on all these other pursuits as if their spiritual life will in no way intersect with the rest of their life are fooling themselves. The time is short. And I would say this especially if you're a Christian. If you're a child of God, one of the benefits and privileges of being a child of God is that God will discipline you and chasten you. He'll do it. It's a benefit. He allows Judas to go to his own place, but he, he, he appears to Peter and eventually confronts him. Simon, do you love me? God in Christ will confront us. He will discipline us. Uh, he will deal with us one way or the other. And if we're not living for Him, if the Spirit's yearning jealously, if God is offended by us, if we're living as adulterers and adulteresses, Do not think that God does not see and that He won't do something about it. And praise God that He will, because when we're in this situation, that's what we need. We need a spanking. We need God to come in, like in the book of Judges, sell us into the hands of misery and and, uh, discomfort so that we cry out to Him and return to Him by doing these very basic things that we've talked about. But of course, the easy way is always more blessed. To simply listen to these verses and freely from the heart by the grace of God obey them and seek the Lord freely and and be healed from your backslidings without having to be sold into bondage to the Midianites. Whatever that may look like for you. Uh, What a joy. How gracious. How compassionate is the Lord. We've been looking at this chapter for many, many weeks and, and God has given us throughout that time, and even tonight, many, many opportunities to get serious with Him. We need to take those opportunities, lest we find the chastening rod of God upon our backs. And though it is gracious and for our good, like any parental discipline that's effective, it is painful. Just ask David in his life. Uh, as Hosea tells us, now is the time to seek the Lord. And I'll just say this about the urgency. Some of you have young children. And uh, they're young now. Maybe they can't always observe everything that you're doing in your life, whether you're regularly in in the Bible and doing family worship and whether you're paying attention uh, in worship or whatever it is. I'm not saying I notice somebody not paying attention, but they're noticing at a certain age. But maybe they're not at the age that your children are understand this, they will be observing you. They will be watching you. Okay, Now is the time. Uh, don't just remember your Creator in the days of your youth, but remember your Creator in the days of the youth of your children. Because the fact is, your spiritual example is the environment in which they learn about Christ. And it's going to uh, really set their entire perspective on the Bible, on Christianity, on Jesus Christ Himself. You are a walking, talking Bible. You are Christ to them as a reflection of your Savior for better or for worse. Uh, The Jews were so hypocritical in Romans 2. Paul says the Gentiles blaspheme because of them. Uh, But the same can happen to your children. They grow up. They see hypocrisy. They see that you're telling them you're your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, but they're seeing that spiritual disciplines in your life are not your chief pursuit. They're not the most important thing. They're actually not important at all unless somebody else is watching or an elder comes over to the house or something like that. If your children grow up and they see that, that you're not zealous and passionate, my friends, that will have 
apart from God's extraordinary grace, that will have a very negative impact on their souls, perhaps on their eternal destiny. So now is the time to get serious. Now is the time to develop spiritual godly habits of spiritual discipline in the Word and prayer. Now is the time to find out how can I keep the Sabbath and maximize the blessedness and joy of that day so that as these little tykes are growing up, they'll grow up in an environment of joy and blessedness on the Sabbath day and they'll find it to be a day of resurrection and nourishment. All of these things are so important for parents of young children and really for all of us in a variety of ways. So now is the time. Act now. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we are powerless in ourselves. But in our weakness, the power of Christ rests upon us. And we can do all things through Christ who gives us the strength. Enable us to abide in that vine that we may bear much fruit. We thank You for the simplicity of Your Word and how humbling it is to realize that we have been negligent in such simple instructions and such basic priorities. Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and ingratitude towards You. But we do thank You that You love us as Your children and that You have given us Your Holy Spirit who does in fact yearn jealously over us and who sanctifies us and cleanses us and washes us. And we pray that He would be active in us even now. That Christ Himself by His Spirit would wash us with water by the Word and sanctify us as a beautiful and spotless bride of Christ both corporately and individually. We pray that You would heal our backslidings and that You would convert those that are outside of Christ, that they may come to the waters and drink freely of these waters of life to the satisfaction of their never-dying souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.